Hello and welcome to the Doc Arena podcast in association with Film Ireland. My name is Ross Whitaker, and every fortnight or so, I want to dig deeply into the motivations of documentary filmmakers. How do they choose their subject material? And what approaches and strategies do they employ to fund, craft and distribute their work? In this episode, I'm delighted to speak to Felicity Morris and Bernie Higgins, the director and producer of The Tinder Swindler, a feature doc now streaming worldwide on Netflix. The film tells the story of three women who are swindled by a man posing as a rich playboy on dating app Tinder and their attempts to bring him to justice. This romance turned mystery turned thriller is another blockbuster doc from Raw Television. The company behind docs like The Imposter, American Animals, Don't Fuck With Cats and Fear City, some of which Bernie and Felicity have produced. I really enjoyed this conversation with Felicity and Bernie and I think it's a great illustration of the teamwork behind a film like this and the process of taking an idea from inception to launch on Netflix. Here's the interview. I'm delighted to be joined by director Felicity Morris and producer Bernie Higgins to discuss The Tinder Swindler. To start off with Felicity, could you give us a little bit more background on the story? The story in a nutshell, without giving too much away, is about how one little swipe on Tinder turns a group of women's lives totally catastrophically upside down when essentially they swipe and meet and some of them fall in love with the person they think is their total Prince Charming in every single way, ticks every single box. And as you might gather from the title, he turns out to be sort of nothing as to what they think that he is um, and is an international con artist who takes them for everything and turns their, you know, turns their dreams and their lives upside down. And um, but the great thing about this story is that the women seek revenge. So they attempt to bring him down. And Bernie, how did you end up coming to this story? What was the background in terms of you ending up producing it? Uh, well, actually, it was Felicity came to me and asked me to produce it when she decided she was going to direct it. Um, we've been working together for a few years at the same company, but never on the same film. And it was something that we really wanted to do. And this just spoke to us. We were just we felt very strongly that we could tell this story, that we understand this world, that we know women like this, that we're friends with women like this, that we have experience of online and online dating and everything else. And we just felt that there was nobody better place to tell the story than us as a partnership. So it was a very easy decision to say yes. At what stage was the project at that point? Had it Was it already in train or were you guys instigating it? Well, the story had already been um, published. Well the, the, well, the films, as you know, is in three acts. And the first two acts of the story had already been spoken about publicly by a Norwegian publication called VG. So Cecilia had gone to them when she felt that the police weren't that interested in her story. And they, like us, thought this is incredible and people have to know about this. So they shared the story. And then it was as a result of that that um, our production company, Raw, um, took it on. Um, so at that, it had already been published uh, in the media, uh, but not through film and not to the extent that we tell the story in the film and not with all of the contributors that uh, came to light as a result of our research for the film. Mm-hmm. So we, we really got into it right at, at the beginning in terms of the filmmaking of it. 
Yeah. And Felicity, was, at what point did you discover this story and think, oh my God, I have to follow this? Well, as Bonnie said, we read, I think it was uh, the Daily Mail had picked it up in the UK, you know, the story of this Tinder con artist. Um, and Cecilia and Penilla had both spoken out at that point. And so we, um, with another production company in LA, we got in contact with them. It's a co-production between Raw and um, AGC in LA. Um, and invited Cecilia and Penilla in to the office to have a meeting. And um, I, I was working in development at the time at Raw, uh, so sort of managing a sort of slate of documentaries, feature documentaries at Raw, and sat with both of them. And they were just, I was sort of blown away by how, you know, amazing storytellers they are you know when you're making when you're thinking about making a film you obviously want your central protagonist to be people that can keep you you know tuned in for however long your film or series will be um they were both you know angry you know they really were desperate to sort of expose simon um on another on another level you know they were rightly um, mad and angry and, you know, wanted justice for themselves. So, you know, that for me was a really big pull to the story was because at that point, Simon was still on the run. He hadn't been arrested at that point. So I thought, well, this is actually a sort of a live story that's still ongoing um, and that on a platform like Netflix would be a sort of a, a real amazing opportunity to tell their story to the world and expose him, you know, further than the newspaper article that we had already read was was doing at the time. You know, you're working in development at Raw at the time, so obviously you had a bit of a pull on, on what kind of ideas were coming into the company, but it seems to jump off the page. Was there any difficulty convincing your colleagues um, that this was something you should pursue further? No. <laughs> I think that when you take into account sort of where this story goes, you know, the idea that it's a real global story. Simon, you know, is Israeli, the women are from all over Europe. Um, you can kind of, you know, tra travel around with it. Um, we realize, you know, we sort of discovered that actually it sort of starts off as a, as a love story really, as a kind of almost like a, the greatest rom-com ever, you know, girl meets boy of her dreams and gets whisked off on a private jet. Then it turns into a mystery. Then it sort of turns into a horror. Then there's a thriller element to it. And then there's this sort of cat and mouse chase of what's gonna to happen to him? How, how is he gonna have his comeuppance? So I think, you know, all of those elements were there and more as we sort of got into it. It does feel like a, a natural fit for Netflix. And I know that that international element immediately makes you think, okay, a worldwide platform, maybe the ones be interested in this, but, what kind of conversations would you have had at that point in terms of thinking about what you might do with this or, or I suppose how you would do the development to make sure that you gave it its best chance of, of finding, you know, finding a home and, and ending up where it ended up? Yeah, I think like you say, for Netflix, it was, you know, just a really, a really good tale for them. I think a really good story. I mean, it's an amazing story for any network, but I think, you know, Netflix in particular, you know, has that sort of big global reach. Um, 
you know, none of none of the none of the contributors are, are American. You know, a lot of stories that we've made in the past have involved, you know, American stories. Um, we're just raw myself. We've just come off the back of making um, Don't Fuck With Cats for Netflix, which sort of had a, a similar in in the Tinder Swindler. We have this incredible digital archive that we get access to, which is the WhatsApp messages. And I think that we knew early on that we want to use them as part of the storytelling. And off the back of making Don't Fuck With Cats, which obviously had that sort of big Facebook digital archive, we knew we knew how to do that. And Netflix, you know, it said, oh, we, you know, we'd love another contemporary story. We'd love another story that sort of dips into the online world. Um, and so for them, it just, yeah, I think they were, they, they commissioned it quickly and then, um, you know, allowed for, for me to direct it. It's my first time directing and I knew that I needed a, partner um, and you know Bernie and I both have both been producers for a long time and you know both complement each other in terms of filmmaking and it was very much a sort of dual filmmaker effort making you know making a film um, together. See I mean you had this amazing digital archive you knew you had you know at least two or three excellent interviewees I mean presumably then as a team you kind of went well there's a lot here but we don't necessarily want to interview every single person that's been swindled. We don't necessarily want to interview everyone they know. So, I mean, Bernie, from a production point of view, how did you start approaching that and trying to construct that, make sense of it and, and work together to, to get to where you got to? Well, it was always very important to us that the film not be a platform for Simon. It was very much a platform for the woman to, to be heard as they felt they hadn't been heard where they'd gone to previous people for help. So we really wanted it very much to be their story. So if it wasn't part of their story, it wasn't in the film, basically. Um, so it was combined by you know, hours and hours and hours of research interviews with all of the contributors to fully understand their entire story, not just as it happened within the, that time frame, but who were they when they came to Tinder that day? What happened to them previously? What were their motivations? What were they looking for? And really getting underneath their skin and understanding who they were as characters, because we always knew that it was them that we needed to understand and it was them that we wanted to represent. Um, so... Yeah, in terms of how to tell the story, I mean, what we always do in the first instance is kind of figure it out in a linear fashion, what chronologically, kind of the timeline, who met and when, what happened. And then once we have all of that information, that's when we can kind of start playing with it in terms of the writing of it and the editing of it. You know, when do we bring in this character? Is it important that we know all of their backstory or can they come just come in at this point? So we always knew that we were going to be starting with Cecilia and that it was going to be kind of, she would be the lift off of the story and then the other women would come into it as they came into her life. That was always kind of, that, that always just made the most sense to us and how to do it. Um, so in terms of, you know, the, the, the riches of Simon that we were finding out, obviously the, the key thing is to find out everything that we can and then make a decision of whether or not to include it. So we find out lots about Simon during the making of the film that we didn't include in it. And that was a very deliberate choice because otherwise we'd be going off in tangents all the time trying to explain Simon. And we were very much didn't want to do that. We always wanted it to be from the point of view of the woman. And we are only learning about Simon, what they learn about Simon as the same time as they learn it really. So that was the, the very clear vision from the start. It was always really important to us that this was the woman's story. Mm -hmm. 
we knew, didn't we, that the audience had to experience the story through the women's eyes. Um, you you mentioned, um, Ross, that, you know, how did we decide not to tell a dozen victim stories? Because there are many, many more than just Cecilia, Penilla and Eileen. Um, but as with sort of, um, you know, unfairly with these kinds of crimes, I think people you know, sort of hear about a dating scam and translate that into, it's a, you know, a desperate, pathetic woman. Um, so we knew from the outset that we needed to like get the sympathy of the, of the viewer for them to sort of fully understand and immerse them in one woman's experience of this guy and of this con essentially. Um, and yeah, so that's so why we sort of chose, as Bernie said, just to sort of stick with Cecilia at the beginning. And then obviously her kind of going to the press you know, exposing what happened to her and what happened to Simon, uh, what, what ha who Simon was, then, you know, allow for this sort of battle and to then be passed to Penilla to come into the story, um, which then, you know, allows for then the story to, to kind of go viral and then obviously for Eileen to pick it up and then the battle is passed again. Um, so that's sort of what we loved about the three women who we featured in the film. Because I thought it was a brave choice. And I suppose it's something you could look at in the making of it, whether or not you felt that was going to work, to have Cecilia carry it for quite a long time. But then she is so engaging and, and uh, charismatic that she does that. So, and I remember in, in Don't Folk With Cats, which I know you produced, that there was quite a limited number of interviewees, but it really focused the story. And I think sometimes it can be a filmmaker's kind of initial thought of like, let's get as many voices here as we can, and then we can really figure out who's, who tells what part of the story best. But in doing it in this way, it's really focused. It's a particular person, or in this case, three people's story along with the reporters. So I thought that was a really brave choice. Was that something you wavered on? Was that something that was questioned along the way? Or that was it from the start? I think we've met Cecilia and Penelope. we'd spent hours and hours and hours speaking to them on Zoom. You know, Bernie did these incredible research calls with them, which allowed me to essentially script out the film. Um, and so we knew that, you know, that they were captivating, they would be captivating interviewees and that, you know, we worked really hard to build up, you know, a level of trust with them so that we, when we came to interview them, we could sit with them and that they would, you know, really open up and, you know, I, I can never say it enough just how easy it is, I think, for directors and producers to sit the other side of the camera, you know, to have the camera just by your shoulder here, you know, a second camera that, you know, to the side, all of the crew behind you and then be asking the questions and expect interviewees to just sort of tell us your life story and the thing that's, you know, the worst thing that's ever happened, happened to you. And I think that was what was particularly incredible about Cecilia was that she, you know, just allowed sort of all of that to fade into the background and just totally wears her heart on her sleeve. And I think that that is what makes her so captivating and charismatic is that she is able to do that. And, you know, we sort of can't thank her enough really for trusting us enough to really just, you know, let all of your barriers and boundaries down and, and, and tell the story as it happened. Um, you know, the other thing is that they all, as I said, you know, they, they really dislike and hate Simon. And so for Cecilia, she then had to put herself back in the love story in sort of, you know, regurgitating all of those feelings that she's probably, you know, pushed away 
um, to make us understand what he was like as a lover and as a partner and as a boyfriend. Yeah, it's really interesting you mentioned that. It's kind of almost almost like a house style of, of some of Raw's films is that very much in the moment storytelling. And it's kind of like, you know, it's I call it like the past continuous. You know, you're asking people, you know, you know tell me just about that part of the story. You know, is that something... I'd be really interested. I hate these kind of questions like how long were the interviews? How much footage did you film? But I'm really curious about if we just take Cecilia's interview, you know, it's in a particular place. It feels like it's at a particular time, but it must have been reasonably long for you to be able to go through in detail everything and then presumably only use a small portion of that. Yeah, I mean, it was a, it was a two day interview in a very cold restaurant in December. <laughs> so she was a real trooper. But yeah, I mean, it is and like, you know, like Fliss says, we always have to kind of remember just how much these people are giving to us when they go in front of the camera. You know, it's emotionally exhausting. You know, we think we're working really hard by making sure we ask all the right questions, and get all the right answers. In the meantime, they're having to repeat answers all the time. They're having to really cast their mind back. They're having to try it another way. So they really do give everything. And it really it is a testament to how much kind of the relationship that we have with them and the trust that they have. But, you know, like Fliss said, it was kind of, we we need you to we need to feel the romance of this part, and obviously it's really hard because you know the, these girls have been traumatized by what happened to them. So for them to remember, I remember when we were trying to get her to talk about the first kiss, when the the first kiss that they have in the elevator, and she really bless her, she really struggled to take herself back. There. She's like. I hear him. You have to just just try and remember that you didn't always hear him. At this point, you were really excited and you were really looking forward to that first kiss. And she was kind of, you know, she got it as it turned out. Actually, we got that from her on the second day after she was a bit warmed up. Sometimes it works actually to start further along the timeline and then work their way back when they're a bit more warmed up. But it was also just helping her understand why we're doing it and kind of constantly reiterating, "Don't worry, you're going to get to be angry later." You really are. We're going to let you express the anger later. But right now, in this moment, we need to feel like you are just heart eyes besotted with this guy and just obsessed with him and can't wait to hear from him. And actually, she was amazing at doing that after, you know, with the right coaching, with the right time. She got it and she was really able to just get into the zone and really remember that. So it was, yeah, it was, it was a stunning interview to watch kind of unfold. Um, but it's, emo- it's emotionally exhausting for the contributor to go through this. And we just, we, you know, once it gets whistled down to them, those final, you know, however many minutes of Cecilia are actually in the final countdown, you know, because cons- we, we have to make sure that we get everything. We have to get every single bit of the story so that we always have it in the edit. But um, yeah, there was always key turning points that we knew we specifically needed to get. And a lot of those were driven by the digital archive as well. And a lot actually what really helped the girls was that a lot of the story could be told by the WhatsApps. So, you know, one WhatsApp could actually tell us as much as three minutes of stink in the chair could. So that was really helpful as well. It's interesting the that the conversation you can have with a contributor during an interview saying, well, this is why we're asking this in this way. And this might be why we have to ask you to do it again. I think that sometimes taking away that kind of veneer between you and explaining what you're doing as you're doing it can actually build trust because they start to understand why you're looking for certain things. It's kind of, I think it's worth kind of being as open as that. Well, the thing is, as well, Pernilla and Cecilia had by this stage done a lot of just kind of classic news interviews. 
So they were used to telling the story, but in a very kind of succinct, abridged way and not, they, they were used to telling the story, but they weren't used to storytelling. Yeah. So it was kind of making that distinction. Like, no, we don't just need the facts. We need you to take us on the journey. Uh, but once they got the hang of it, they were away. It's interesting that Bernie, you did the kind of setup interviews, and then Felicity, you do the on the day interview. Because I sometimes wonder about that if that if the director does too much with the people in advance, that it can kind of take away from the moment. Is that part of the reason why you do it that way? Um, I don't know because I don't know that it would have really. I think with the with the women in the film, you know, it was important for both of us to have, you know you know, there are peers at the end of the day. Um, so, you know, I think that there's a sort of, maybe a slightly older fashioned way of filmmaking, which is, you know, the director is, you know, the all important person who sort of comes in on shoot day and sits down and, you know, interviews the contributor. But for us, you know, we built up a friendship, um, you know, with all of the women. Um, and I think it was, you know, it was, it was more sort of like workload sharing, but, you know, Bernie, yeah, did just like a wonderful job of these, you know, sort of 10, 10 hour Zooms with each of the women, which then essentially, you know, that you can, that's basically a sort of a full script then, which I worked into, into a script. And then with sort of all of the WhatsApps as well, which, you know, we had transcribed every single voice note, you know, sort of 800 pages of these things, <laughs> then working them into, into the script. Um, so that actually... You know, by the time we got to the edit, I mean, obviously the final film has sort of come on those and you do tons of work in the edit. But, you know, that script that we had that we were working from is 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 sort of the final film in a way, I think. Um, but, yeah, so we just sort of had to, you know, we had a we had a really generous pre-production period that meant that once we went into filming, I mean, we only shot for 14 days. Um, that's all of the drama, all of the interviews, um, you know, we, we sort of knew what we needed. Wow, that's amazing. And can you tell me a bit more about that scripting process then? What, what's your, I suppose, approach to that to, you know, is there any technique to, to taking all that material and kind of making it into a two hour script? My advice would be make sure that your script is more like two hours and not 10 hours, which mine not. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I think that, you know, the, the, the best thing about that is that you can map out where the turning points are, which, you know, are difficult to then, if you haven't got, because there's no narration in these films. So if you haven't got the contributor saying it, it's very difficult to create that in the edit. Um, and so I think that that, that that was really helpful for us. And then also sort of, you know, the overlapping of, of the women's stories um, it also just prompts us, you know, on things that they've said in their interviews that are absolute gold dust, like, you know, incredible lines, one-liners that you then think, oh, gosh, they were, you know, uh, I wish they'd said that on the interview day, but actually then you've got a note of it. And you can say, look, you know, in your pre-interview, you said this, can you just tell me that again? Um, and it's just like a great sort of, you know, you've just got your... Uh, a map a roadmap really to guide you through um and you can sort of cross off the bits of the story that you've done and bits of the story that you feel that you've covered well enough and you know Bernie would sit next to me and be sort of you know we'd sort of share the burden I think of 
making sure that sort of every little bit of the story that we wanted to get that we that we got and that we got it um you know well enough well it, it's when you have when you know you have those people for a couple of days and maybe not again then i suppose it makes a lot of sense just to get it all and and especially if you only have 14 days so what was the approach that from a production point of view did, did you have a a gap after the interviews to kind of think about how to approach the additional footage yeah we had um we had a gap a long gap between um assembling the film doing the all of the interviews assembling the film we were also sort of blighted by covid so a couple of the interviews we had to do remotely and you know we were kind of waiting waiting hoping that you know, places would open up so that we could travel. But in the end, it was just, let's just get it done because otherwise, you know, we'll never finish the film. Um, and then, you know, we had a, a put together, I guess, a radio play of all of the, you know, all of the interviews. Um, and then you kind of tighten it, tighten it, tighten it. We had all of the graphics that we created for the WhatsApps and then, uh, black holes to fill. Uh, you know, we knew that we wanted to do fairly, you know, not too on the nose recon, um, very much through the eyes of the women experiencing the glamour and the dates and the restaurants. We knew that that was at once something that we would want to recreate. Um, and then, so we had a, a sort of long, old drama shoot uh off the back of the world cup final that started at two in the morning um in a hotel in london um to sort of do all of the all of the drama scenes that you that you see and we did a little bit of uh recon drama filming in amsterdam as well and stockholm and stockholm yeah yeah (laughs) you know you mentioned that you, you know, you had a, potentially a very long film that eventually ended up being an hour and 50 odd minutes. But a lot of the time now with docs, is kind of a question is, is this a series or is it a feature? At any point, did you think that maybe this was a series? We didn't know. We always wanted it to be a feature doc. We always just felt because it's so, we wanted it to be propulsive the whole way through. We didn't want to feel like we were kind of just like stretching something out to try and get a cliffhanger, which then would lead into episode two. And the thing about Simon during this period was that he was he was doing the same thing again and again and again with different people. So it would have just been the same story with different women. And we had the women who could really actually take the story from A to B to C in that kind of relay race that, that Fliss was mentioning earlier. And we just knew that we we could make this a really exciting romance turned mystery turned thriller if we just kept it tight and kept it to the two hours. Um, if we tried to stretch it into a series, we probably would have had to delve more into Simon and his background and all of that. And we really, you know, as we said earlier, we really didn't want this to be about Simon. So we just thought we've got everything that needs to be, everything that we need to illustrate how this guy works can be done by using these three women in a two-hour thriller dog. So we, yeah, we, we fought quite hard for that. We always felt very strongly that that's what we wanted it to be. Yeah, so you say you fought for it. So it was obviously something that was discussed at, at some point. A little, a little bit. bit. <laughs> okay, we'll yeah, move on. You're always thinking, oh, is there, more, yeah. you know, is there more in this? You know, you also want the women to feel like they've had their you know, like they've told their story in as full a way as possible. And, you know, there's no denying that Cecilia's story, Penilla's story, Eileen's story could easily fill an episode each. 
Um, but, you know, what we have felt from the start is that this is a story that feels like a movie. Um, you know, it has all the trappings of like, you couldn't, you couldn't write a script like this really. And so I think we went into this feeling this, that we want to make a feature doc that feels like a movie, um, whether or not we've achieved that. But, uh, but yeah, that's, that was the ambition. Um, yeah. a really tight feature doc that you can watch in one night um, and, you know, that, that almost leaves you wanting more. Um, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, it, it's exactly that. It's, it's just so incredible. Um, it's amazing. And it's amazing that you, you came across it and everything. And I mean, a, a couple other questions. It's interesting. Just a few choices as a director. Felicity, this was your first film being the director. How did that change, I suppose, how you approach the whole process? Were you starting to get asked questions you weren't used to be asking? What kind of things did you did you want? To, I mean, I know the, the interviews are all feel like they're in a, like a date scenario, which I thought was really, really good. What, what, are the, what kind of things were you thinking as a director going into it? The, the idea of situating the interviews as, a date, as dates was Bernie's idea, so I can't take any credit for that, um, which was, you know, perfect, per, the perfect place for them to be. We wanted it to feel sort of, you know, I knew that I wanted the interviews to feel intimate and for you to get a sense that there were, you know, women making this film. Um, I knew that I wanted the women to, you know, look and feel really amazing when they watched it. So, um, you know, we, we, you know, and have, have sort of, obviously, you know, we've got the kind of, you know, the, the gorgeous romantic lighting and so on. And, um, you know, we use these very cool, uh, 70s lenses, anamorphic lenses and so on. And um, I actually haven't worked with the DOP, Edgar Dubrovsky, before. Um, I'd sort of been following him on Instagram um, and really liked the look of the things that he'd made in the past. And then we started talking about the look and feel of the film and how, you know, we wanted the romance to feel warm and inviting, but then for the film to sort of get bleaker and colder as it goes on, which is why Eileen's interview is then sort of in the day. It's like reality has hit home. The, you know, uh, bubble has burst. Um, you know, it's the morning after the horrific night before kind of thing. And that's why her interview is daytime and the other two women who are obviously, uh, you know, still in the love story are much, yeah, much warmer and romantic. And then, you know, then you've got the the three, there's the, the cool kind of Norwegian, Scandinavian element to it, that sort of noir vibe that we talked a lot about, didn't we, Bernie, and their interviews, while we didn't actually get to go over to Norway to film them, unfortunately, um, but we had a, an amazing uh, remote crew out there who sort of set up set up those interviews for us while we were in, in London in the office on Zoom, um, and they're sort of much bluer and, and, and you know, cooler, um, but you know, the music for me was a huge part of the film as well. Um, I'm not sure uh, what you thought, Ross, but um, we wanted it to, you know, we, we had this incredible young female composer called Jessica Jones. Um, and when we went to her, we said, well, it's, you know, it's a film that starts as a romance that then goes into a mystery that then turns really dark and is a horror. 
and then you've sort of got this unsettling feeling at the end of it. Um, and, you know, we talked a lot about how we wanted the music to feel at the start um, and took cues from, you know, big, big sort of rom-com, Bridgerton, you know, all of those uh, series and movies. Um, and, and so I think, and we wanted Simon to have a theme that kind of morphed and got darker throughout. So if you listen in, you'll hear that. And, and then also for the women to have their own theme as well, that then sort of keeps coming up. And I think that for me personally, that is a really amazing part of the film is, is the music. The music is stunning. So she did an amazing job. But how was that process then? Because obviously, I mean, I guess the film is essentially a year in the making if you, if you were interviewing back in, in last winter. So she must not have had all that long it, it, was she working with a finished film or did she start giving you cues as you went along? Yeah, once we got into the edit, she started giving us cues. Um, and, you know, we work with temporary tracks that we sort of lay down just so that Julian Hart, you know, the editor, cut, you know, cuts to the music. Um, and then she sort of takes that, but then totally transforms it and makes it her own. Um, you know, so we were speaking to her all the time, weren't we? Um, but you know that that final track, that end track, um, we went you know round in circles about you know which where the cards, the sonic sort of final cards, um, are over. And uh, you know we had a pop track in there, we had another track in there, and then in the end we thought, no, this needs to be a composed, uncomfortable feeling piece of music. And she did that in a day, uh, you know. So. Amazing. She was amazing to work with. Mm. It was an incredible experience for both of us because I think as producers, that's not, you know, we've both produced before. That's not part of the filmmaking that you're as involved in as much. Mm. Um, and we both, yeah, loved it. Yeah, it's a brilliant part of the process when you start getting those tracks and they're working and there's, you know, even a surprise to you and how that person has brought something of their own. Um, I suppose it's the same with the editor to a degree as well. And, and you know, you went in with your script Julian's obviously a renowned documentary editor. How was that relationship and, and, and working to get it from your much longer version down to the, the two hours? I mean, yeah, Julian is uh, talented beyond. I mean, he's yeah, an incredible storyteller. You know, he also for this, he's, he's quite a, a bit of a softy, which, you know, he was brilliant in that he wanted to kind of, he, he got wrapped up in the love story as much as, as much as we did. Um, he, he's just, a, he's just a, ma a master really, the way that he can kind of, you know, make those turns really work and build. Um, you know, the graphics, I can't tell you, was just a, a huge, huge uh, mammoth bit of, bit of work and then all of obviously the montages that he cut together and how quickly that you know I think there's more montages in this film than he's ever done before there's more cuts in this film than he's ever done before so um but yeah it was it was fantastic having him um you know would, the film wouldn't be what it is now without obviously Julian getting his hands on it and getting stuck into it with us yeah just as a final question um so you have two uh, very well-known exec producers in Bart Layton and Sam Starbuck as well. I mean, it sounds like you guys didn't need much help and you were all over it, but did it help to work? Did it help to work with the, you know, with that kind of guidance available to you, I suppose? 
Oh, absolutely. I mean, Bart is a master. Well, they both are, but, but Bart obviously did the imposter. Um, so they were both, they both brought very different elements to the to to it, but where they were both brilliant was, you know, it's very hard not to get really married to a story, especially when you've been getting researching it for as long as we had, and say, you know, this is a really important part, or this is a really important part. And then they would kind of look at the cut and they'd be like, actually, I don't think you need that, or I don't think you need this. And we'd be like, no, no, that's really important. They'd be like, no, seriously, trust us, just get rid of it. And that's it's when they can come in with that kind of vision at the top and just watch it without being so involved in it that they really make it that kind of propulsive through like Bart, one of Bart's favorite expressions to use in the edit. Is, you know, let's get off to the races. Let's get off to the races. You know, what, why is this taking so long? Start the story. So all of those kind of notes coming back from both of them are like super helpful. And also just being really supportive throughout the process. You know, as Fliss has mentioned, you know, we were making this during 2020 and 2021. So that came with, obviously a huge amount of challenges and just to have their support and Sam particularly was always fighting for us to make sure that we got what we wanted to make sure that you know the, the, the production team were doing everything that they could to make sure that we were able to travel that we had everything that we could possibly need so I mean the whole wider team on this film were just exceptional we you know we were so lucky with them you know we've already said that the next time we want to make a film we want to do it with this exact team we're totally spoiled now <laughs> Um, but yeah, I mean, having execs with that level of experience, you, you know, we, we understand that we're very lucky and that it was a huge uh, benefit to us to have them overseeing it and guiding us. Well, listen, guys, congratulations on a brilliant film. Uh, I'm sure it's going to be a ginormous success. So uh, thanks for talking to me and best of luck with it. Thanks so much. Thanks again to Felicity Morris and Bernie Higgins for taking part in the interview. The Tinder Swindler is now available on Netflix worldwide. Thanks to Stephen Galvin and Phil Marland for supporting the podcast and to film composer Michael Fleming for kindly allowing me to steal his music. You can find more of it at michaelflemingmusic.com. And thanks to you for listening.